0: released from the power and demand of the law that we might freely and liberatedly obey the law. What? (laughs) Let's talk about that next on Graceful Truth. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Elsewhere, he says not a jot or tittle will be stricken or wiped away until the end of the age. So how are we released from the law if it's still in place? Ah, That is the question the Apostle Paul deals with marvelously, I might add, here in Romans chapter 7. And that's where we catch up with Pastor Steve Converse today on Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Join us, won't you, as we understand what it means to be released from the law that we might then obey the law. Now that all plays about in grace. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast.
1: Galatians chapter three, verse thirteen. It tells us this Christ redeemed us, Galatians three thirteen, redeemed us from the curse of the law, from its condemning power, by becoming a curse, what? For us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why did he do that? Why did he hang on a tree? Why did he hang on a cross? So that we could be delivered from the curse of the law. That's the purpose. That's the reason there. He became a a curse for us. Galatians 2, 19 to 20 says this. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. How did this happen? He goes on and he says... Verse 20, I have been crucified, what's Paul say? With who? With Christ. And then he goes on, he says, it's no longer I who live. Remember we said there's no old you left. You were dead, you're buried. And that's why Paul's saying, it's not me who lives. It's not the I who lives, but Christ lives in me or through me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we were put to death to the law, but we came alive in Christ. We went over that in chapter 6. But look at where he carries this, this, this application here in, in verse 4, because it's kind of interesting. Back to Romans 7. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. Just like Christ died, you died. You died with him. And then he applies it here. He says, So that you may belong to another. Or you may marry another. What's he saying here? You know what he's saying? In a nutshell, he's saying, when you are saved, you you don't have the same relationship going on. It's totally different. Salvation is a complete change of relationship. You no longer have the first husband you had. He died. You're no longer under the bondage of the law. And now, because you died... You're free to marry Christ. You have a new relationship with Christ. See, that's, that's what salvation is all about. If we didn't die, then we, we couldn't spiritually marry Christ. This is what he's pointing out. And you see in Ephesians 5 and other places where marriage is, is a picture of the bride and the groom. It's pictured as the church in Christ, right? You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where... We are an espoused wife having a marriage consummated to Christ in the future in glory. So we're called to be married to another, and it tells us who it is. You say, well, who are we married to? What's it say? It says that you may belong to another or married to another. At the end of verse 4, to him who has been what? Excuse me, raised from the dead. Who was raised from the dead? Christ. We're not only identified in union with Christ, we're not only identified with his death in the past and his resurrection, but we're also identified in union with a living Savior. And that's kind of an important point. He says, for the one who has been raised from the dead, has the idea of something happened here, but you know what, it has ongoing, today it's, it's a realistic thing that's still going on. Now, in chapter 6, verse 9, look at this verse. We'll just jump back there real quick. Chapter 6, verse 9, because it really gives us a little insight into this. It says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, what's it say? Will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And you say, well, what's your point? The point is this. We We'll never lose our current husband. Our relationship, our marriage with Christ is secure in Him. There's nothing that can break that. And so we died in Christ by this mysterious miracle of our union with Christ. And we were raised with Him by grace through faith. And now we walk in the newness of life because salvation is a total transformation. It's something that God does in our lives. He transforms us. He makes us a new person. Old things have fallen away. Behold, all things have become new. But it's important that we understand that Christ died. He's not going to die again. Therefore, if we're married to Christ, he will never not be our husband. He will never not be our Savior. We will always have that relationship with him. And it speaks directly to our eternal security in Christ. For the life of me, I don't understand how Christians who do not believe in the perseverance of the saints and eternal security, how they function. How could you have any peace if, if your salvation wasn't secure? If your salvation wasn't eternal? If it was up to you to somehow keep a bunch of rules and regulations and maybe if you did it good enough, God would eventually save you ultimately and finally and completely. What a glorious thing it is to know that, that Christ secured our salvation at the cross it's done it's over we don't have to worry about it we don't have to sit in bed with our eyes open late at night going oh man what if Christ goes?" I don't know if I'm a sick Christian or not we don't have to do that because we are secure in Christ let me say this I think that there are Christians who do that there are Christians who worry there are Christians who wonder the Bible does even indicate that we should mark out times where we examine our faith, right? To make sure that we're in the faith. So that's not all bad. I'm not saying we just lay back in the armchairs of grace and say, yeah, I'll just let go and let God, whatever. I'm just on for the ride. No. Okay. There's there's a picture of our security in Christ. Remember, we're secure in Christ, chapter 5. Why? Because, and then he, as a result of that security, he produces sanctification. He produces holiness in our lives, chapter 6. And then finally, we have this freedom from the law in chapter 7. We're free from a works righteousness. We don't have to work for our salvation from trying to earn it. And the reason we are is because Christ died, was buried, and was risen from the dead. And he will no longer die. Death has no dominion over him. And so when we think about that, that relates directly to us as well. And so when you apply it, it's, it's a wonderful application. Well, Fourthly here, let's look at the the purpose of this. Why is this happening? And he says here in the end of verse 4, he gives the, the reason. Why does God do this? Why does God save us? Why does God go through all this work? What's he say? In order that we may, what? Bear fruit for God. That's the purpose. That's why God saved you. Now, please understand, he's not commanding us here to bear fruit. This isn't a command construction. He's not saying, oh, now you're a Christian. You you, you better get out there and work hard and bear fruit. No, he's not saying that. It's not a command. It's a statement of fact. He's simply saying, you know what? Because this happened, this transformation happened, you've been raised from the dead, all this stuff. You're a new Christian, new follower of Christ. Because of that, you know what? You're going to see fruit in your life. You're going to see fruit in your life. You know, there's no such thing as a Christian who has no fruit. There's no such thing. There's a lot of people who profess themselves Christians who have no fruit. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who have no fruit. They live the same life they lived before they, quote, came to Christ or raised their hand or signed a card or whatever they did. But if you look at their life, there's no change. There's no change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. It's very simple. This is what Paul wants them to understand. Because, see, a lot of his readers came out of a culture out of Judaism where, you know what, you had to do this, you had to do that. And if you did this, you got certain accolades. And, boy, if you wore certain clothes, I'll... And and Paul's saying, no, set all that aside. The fruit that comes out of your life after you are saved is something that God does through you. See, because of our transformed life, because of our salvation in Christ, we will see, we will bear fruit to God. It goes all the way back to the question beginning of chapter 6 there. When you preach this kind of message, grace, salvation. And you ask people to come to Christ by grace, through faith. You don't have to do anything to earn it. It's a free gift by God. You just take it. You're under grace. It goes right back to chapter, or chapter 6, verse 1. Well, if that's how it works, then why not just send it up so that there can be more grace? See, he's, he's building an argument against that still. He's saying, no, that won't happen. You'll bear fruit as a Christian. You'll walk in holiness as a Christian. Chapter 7 says, if you're truly married to Jesus Christ, you will bring forth fruit unto God. You won't just lay back and say, yeah, all my sins are forgiven, so I'm going to go live like the devil. <laughs> you won't have that attitude. Hodge, one of the theologians, wrote this. The only evidence of union with Christ is bringing forth fruit unto God. How do you know? How do I know if you're a Christian? How do you know if I'm a Christian? You know, we can't put you in a little machine and x-ray your heart and say, Yep, there's Jesus. He's down. Yep, He's there. He's a Christian. No. You know, after you become a Christian, a seed doesn't magically appear on your forehead. You know, we don't know. There's a lot of people who say they're Christians. How will you know? The Bible says you'll know them by their what? By their fruit. By their fruit. And it's something that will happen as a result of the Spirit. MacArthur summarizes it this way. When you talk about fruit... I like how he puts this. He says basically you can look at two things, attitude and action. What's attitude? Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. What's that relate to? That relates to our attitude. When someone comes to Christ, you'll see a change in their attitude. You'll see some of those of, of that fruit, and by the way, it's not the fruits plural of the spirit. I've mentioned this before, but we have a lot of people who still say, oh, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy. You know, I think I'll take joy today. I'm going to work on joy. No, it's either you have them or you don't have any of them. You can't pick and choose because it's a total transformation. That's the attitude aspect of it. Well, what about the action? He goes over to Hebrews chapter 13. He says, the fruit of your lips praise on to God. Or Philippians 4, he mentions, the fruit of a loving heart, a gift sent to the Apostle Paul. See, Philippians talks about the fruit of righteousness. Any righteous act, any act that glorifies God is fruit. Now, if you're doing something for God and you're just looking for a pat on the back and they give you pats on the back, well, guess what? That's all the fruit you're going to (laughs) see. That's all the reward you're going to get. That's it. Oh, good job. Oh, thank you very much. When you get to heaven, well, what about all this stuff I did? Well, you no, know, didn't they say thank you? Didn't they acknowledge you? Yeah, well, that, well, that's it. No reward. See, that's why we don't want to go around with false motives serving Christ. We don't want to do it with a sincere heart. And when Christ transforms your life and you are dead to the law and you become alive to God, it's not just something that happened way back here. It has a a current understanding that things are still going on. There's a present reality to your salvation. And that present reality produces fruit through the Spirit of God. I mean, Jesus uses this terminology a lot. We don't need to go into all it, right? He calls himself the vine. We're the what? The branches. Okay? And he carries that whole illustration out there. So salvation has a product The product isn't the attitude of, well, I'm just going to go do whatever I want now that I'm saved. All my sins are forgiven. I'm just going to go be more sinful. See, thinking you're going to get forgiven or forgiveness for everything you do personally is wrong. You're not going to get forgiven. You're not going to get salvation for that. But it's because of something that was done for you good illustration when someone says, well, you know, all the salvation, what's it mean to be saved anyway? You know, t- two words, do and done. <laughs> Some people say, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian now. What's that mean? It means, basically, I'm trusting in what was done on the cross for me. Before, as a Catholic, I was trusting in what I did, what I do every day. I went to Mass, I went to for confession, did all these things. And I was trusting that somehow God would look favorably on me because of my activities. That would never save anyone. So think of that, do and done. Christ, what Christ has done for us, and what we do has little or no effect before our salvation in Christ. So the product of true salvation is always holiness. It's always fruitfulness. And so in verse 5, he says this, For while we were living in the flesh, while we were living in the flesh, he rattles off a couple things. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So once you're saved, you should bear fruit for God. But before you're saved, that's what he says. For while we were in living in the flesh. There's a couple ways that you can understand that. But then he lists off flesh, sin, law, death right there. They're all connected. They all talk about our unregenerate self, our unsaved self. Or fallenness. And notice when he says there in verse 5. While we were living in the flesh. In the flesh. Well you can understand flesh in a couple ways. Flesh can be understood physically. Right? Paul uses it a couple times then. But it's important to understand when Paul uses flesh. Or when the Bible even in general uses flesh. To relate to the physical characteristic of somebody it doesn't have anything evil to do with it. There's no evil uh, connotation there. There's no evil understanding. It's just a word when it's used physically. There's nothing bad about the word flesh. I mean, we think as Christians, flesh, that means bad. Well, not always. If you think about it, for the word was what? Made flesh. Christ was made flesh, John one fourteen. So if that word meant evil, we have a real problem. Because Christ definitely wasn't evil. So, the word flesh doesn't always mean something evil when it's relating to the physicality of something. John, uh, 1 John 4 2 says that anyone who doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is what? Is not of God. See, that's some of the religious beliefs of the, of the, the day in which Christ lived. Some of these people had a real problem. Well, wait, you're God and you have a fleshly body? We believe the body to be evil. And they were all mixed up that way. The body's not evil. God created the body. Last time I checked, he said it was good. So when it relates to the physicality of something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's evil. Secondly, when it's used ethically or morally, that word, and you find it used over and over and over again, if you look at Romans chapter 8, and when we get there, you'll see this word a lot, flesh. I think it's used in in, in verse um, 4. It's used in verse 5, 6, 7. It's all throughout the chapter of 8. And for the most part, everywhere there, it's relating to an ethical or moral relationship kind of a a thing. That's what it's talking about, the flesh. And and when it relates to it that way, it's always evil. (laughs) So if it's talking about the physical body, it's just a word. But if it's relating to something moral or ethical, we see in Scripture that it definitely has some evil trappings to it. In Galatians chapter 5, you see it four times there. In Ephesians 2, you see it a couple times, that word that has the evil kind of connotation with it, it's relating to it morally. It's speaking of man's unredeemed humanness. It's speaking of someone outside of Christ. And so, back to Romans 7, he says there, for while we were living in the flesh, what's he saying? When we were unredeemed... When our being was unsaved, we were just engulfed in the flesh. And notice, he points out, we were living in the flesh. It's past tense. I don't know about you, but I'm no longer in the flesh as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're no longer in the flesh. Say, so, well, Wait a minute, i got a body. Remember what I said. It's not relating to the body. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Look at what he says here. Paul says, "...in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not what, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." We don't walk according to the flesh. We're not in the flesh as Christians. That's what the transformation is all about. That's why we're changed. That's why there's fruit. Verse 5, "...for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. Well, guess what? We already died in Christ. We're not going there again. So that's not us. But to set the mind of the, on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God or an enemy of God is the idea. We sing the song, I am a friend of God. Well, that wasn't always the case. At one point, we were an enemy of God until he transformed us and he saved us. He continues in verse 7, he says, For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And then he says this, Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. So guess what? If that's relating to our bodies, (laughs) none of us can please God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who is outside of Christ. Someone who is still in their unredeemed state. He's talking about an unregenerate person. No matter how hard they try No matter how good they live, it makes no difference. They're not going to please God. They may please their wives. They may please the society they live in. They may please their kids. They're not going to please God. You're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's what the Bible says. And the Spirit of God dwells in every Christian. Don't believe the lie that says, Oh, when you become a Christian, then you've got to to do some extra work to get the Spirit. No. That's the whole charismatic that believe that. And it's wrong. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, Or you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. It's that simple. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin. The spirit of life because of righteousness. When you look at at Romans chapter 7 verse 5, unregenerate people are people in the flesh. We're not, as Christians, in the flesh. You say, well, why am I still having issues with sin? Right? I mean, if you're saying, I'm not in the flesh, why do I still deal with this? And we've gone over that before, but just to remind you that you're not in the flesh, but the flesh is in you. It no longer really engulfs you. It no longer really has you as its captive because of our sermon title. We've been released from that whole, whole scene. You're no longer its slave. You've been freed from the bondage that it had on you. We don't have to, for the first time in our lives as believers, we don't have to yield to sin. We have a choice. God provides a way out. He's always faithful to do that, the Word of God says. Sometimes we pick it, sometimes we don't. Galatians 5 says just that. Walk not after the flesh, but after the what? After the Spirit. See, we may do fleshly things because the flesh is in us. But we're not in the flesh. We have to get that right. That's a... Someone who is outside of Christ, that's designated toward them. We're a new creation. We're regenerate. We're redeemed. Positionally, before God, we're holy. We're pure. We're undefiled. And when we get to Romans 8, we'll see that Paul still has his unredeemed self to deal with. The humanness, there's still touches of that there. But for the first time, we can not listen to it. We can listen to the spirit rather than the flesh. And so he points that out there in verse 5 says, so while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. That simply means, you know what? If there wasn't a law, then we wouldn't be tempted to break the law. <laughs> so the law really aroused the sin within us. We died to that which held us captive so that, or at the end of verse 5 there, excuse me, we're at work in our members to bear fruit of, uh, for death. So when we were in the flesh, we couldn't do anything but wrong. But look at what he says. He finally gives us the final product here in verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law because of the work of Christ. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. When we died to Christ, with Christ, we died to the law. You can't hold a dead person captive. But he says this. Look at what he says at the end of verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the code or the law. When you stop and think about it, as a Christian, as you serve Christ, I hope and pray that it's a little different for you now than it was before you were a Christian. But see, this is what verse 6 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. See, once you're a Christian, The Holy Spirit enables you, he gifts you with certain abilities and certain giftings to be used for his glory and to bear fruit within his church.
0: Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible-teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-366. 9923. Again, that's six five zero three six six. 9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to uh, visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app, new and improved and ready to use. Whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church, Redwood City CA, or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org and follow the prompts. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth.